Welcome one and all. It is Monday, March 21st of 2022, and I am your host, Kevin McDonald. You're listening to the New Mexico In Focus podcast, and we've got a jam-packed show again for you today, and we're going to start off with a fascinating discussion that we'd love to get your thoughts on as well, all about the science of weather modification, more commonly probably known as cloud seeding. Sounds like something out of a science fiction movie. I know I was skeptical when I first heard about the push for applications for this here in New Mexico. It started last year up around Taos, but the community there spoke pretty loudly that they didn't want this. But now there is a new application in Roosevelt County. And so we wanted to find out, does this actually work, this cloud seeding? And how does it work? And are there any dangers associated with it? Uh, Is this the key to dealing with our ongoing drought? Lots and lots of questions here. And our Our Land correspondent, Laura Paskus, went in search of answers. And uh, not only from state regulators and officials talking about the science, but also the folks who are responsible for this cloud seeding process. So here now is Laura Paskus from Our Land with a special conversation about weather modification. Gary Walker, thanks so much for joining me today to talk about weather modification. You're very welcome. So you're the co-owner of SOAR, which stands for Seeding Operations and Atmospheric Research. Um, For those of us not familiar with the technology, can you kind of give us the big picture overview of, of what this sort of weather modification is? Weather modification goes on in more than 40 countries in our world. Water is an issue for all of us, and uh, uh, the United Nations even predicts that by 2050 that uh, most countries uh, in our world will have water shortages. Um, Weather modification is a tool that's been in existence for well over 50 years. I spent 30 years uh, as the manager of a water conservation, two water conservation districts in Texas. Um, And the depletion of the Ogallala aquifer was one of the main drivers behind my involvement with weather modification. And so in the agricultural areas of uh, the Panhandle of Texas, the South Plains of Texas, the Eastern New Mexico uh, portions uh, there in your state, uh, the groundwater depletions uh, and declines are, have been a very big concern for, for producers, uh, uh, cities as well for many, many years. So you're working with meteorologists and watching forecasts and you get those suitable clouds. Kind of what happens next? What's the process? In the summertime, we're looking for those cumulus type clouds that uh, have liquid water in them and the airplane will uh, go into the go into the air and, and go toward the cloud identified by that meteorologist that will have suitable liquid water in it and we will disperse an ice crystal type nucleate in that cloud and that 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 uh, synthetic ice crystal then will uh, be attracted uh, to the water particles those minute water particles and then they become heavy enough to fall out as a raindrop clouds are generally uh, fairly inefficient 
uh, and that's why cloud seeding does work. There's a lot of lot of moisture in the atmosphere. A cloud is not like a pitcher full of water, and once it pours out, it's just empty. The atmosphere, um, suitable clouds that are seeded at the proper time, uh, research uh, has shown that those those clouds last longer and produce more rainfall because that atmosphere continues to uh, keep that 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 cloud uh, uh, more or less in a constructive uh, phase. I know the state of Utah has been doing this for a while. You mentioned California. I'm curious, you've been doing this a while. Is there more and more of a demand for these types of services as more people are really seeing the effects yes. of drought? Absolutely. Um, you know, it, again, it, it, cloud seeding is not the silver bullet. It's not going to end all droughts in all countries. Uh, but just like so many other things that we have that that enhance either our computers or enhance our gas mileage or whatever um, we can enhance the rainfall and and the value of what i call a return on investment many many times is uh minuscule compared to what it costs to either build a pipeline or dig up new reservoir, uh, those things take lots and lots of time. And so not to say that we shouldn't be concerned with conservation and reuse and even new supplies uh, such as they have available on the coastal areas of our country uh, and other countries for desalinization. So I imagine that you spend a lot of time talking with people who are pretty worried about the drought. Um, I'm curious if you could you know, talk a little bit about what you've seen change over the decades when it comes to drought and, and people trying different things or new things? Yeah, well, I, my last 25 years as a water district manager was right up across the eastern side of New Mexico in, in the Yoakum County area, Plains, uh, Denver City area. Our water declines in the aquifer there many years uh, was as much as two to three feet a year. Um, so a lot of those areas, um, Laura, they may only have uh, 20, 20, less than 30, 40 feet of saturated thickness left in the aquifer. Um, pretty easy to you know, to divide that by two and figure out about how many years that you have left to irrigate. And so we can extend the life of the aquifer a little by by producing um, some additional rainfall. Um, not, not to even talk about the, the savings and the pumping costs for agriculture. And of course, our, our ranching community, I mean, they're, they're tickled to death to have a you know, have a half inch anytime, but uh, it's certainly important for the for the production of our irrigated acres. Well, Gary, thanks so much for talking with me. I really appreciate it. And here's hoping we all get some good clouds this summer. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Uh, we we hope so as well. Hannah Risley White, thanks for joining me today to talk about weather modification. Thanks, Laura, it's a pleasure to be here. 
So when we're talking about weather modification, what activities are we actually, like, what do those encompass? Largely that encompasses either ground-based or aerial-based cloud seeding, usually using silver iodide or calcium or potassium chloride. And the idea is to put tiny particles in the sky under exactly the right conditions to help induce droplets to form to increase rainfall. So this isn't something that's necessarily new in the state of New Mexico. Um, procedures for the state to evaluate and potentially approve these projects are codified in the state's Water Quality Act, is that right? So yeah, actually the Weather Control Act was passed in 1965. Um, and we at New Mexico Interstate Stream Commission were only tasked with evaluating applications for licenses for cloud seeding um, in 2003, the legislature moved that responsibility from New Mexico Tech to us. And so just to be clear, we aren't necessarily proponents of it, but we are tasked by statute with evaluating applications for cloud seeding in New Mexico. So one application for um, a proposed project in northern New Mexico was recently withdrawn. Can you talk a little bit about what that project would have been and kind of what happened in the process? Sure. So in October of last year, so 2021, we received an application for a license from a company called Western Weather Consultants. They would be the actual um, entity that would have conducted this particular project that was um, ground-based cloud seedings. This would have been a project to induce additional rainfall over the Sangre de Cristo Mountains through ground-based cloud seeding using silver iodide. Um, they, however, were not the project sponsor. That was so Roosevelt Soil and Water Conservation District, which received in the 2021 legislative session funding for cloud seeding specifically. Um, but we got a tremendous amount of interest in that application, one of the requirements in our process in New Mexico is that any um, application for a license for cloud seeding has to be noticed publicly in newspapers. We received over 250 protests associated with that particular application. Um, so lots and lots of interest in it. Um, and we're, we're glad to see that people care and are concerned about water issues in New Mexico. Um, as you, I think, know, we've also been working on the governor's 50-year water plan over the last year. and so. Um, hoping that some of the folks whose attention was caught by the cloud seeding efforts might get interested in that process as well, given the sort of scarcities that we're facing. Do you anticipate or does the state anticipate getting more of these types of applications? Is this something we're going to see more of, you think? You know what? I would not be surprised, um, given that we're in the third year of a, a significant drought across the state. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, doing this work on the 50-year water plan, you know, the, the anticipated increasing scarcity to our water supplies across the state is significant. We're looking at a 25% reduction in water supplies by 2070. So I think people will, um, you know, continue to have quite a bit of interest in cloud seeding. I should also mention that in receiving the application that we received last fall for the Sangres, and in looking at this current application that, you know, we um, have some thoughts at the staff level in terms of potential changes to the rule, the weather enhancement rule, um, which is what governs how these applications are handled. We also heard pretty loud and clear from folks 
last fall that that they'd like to see some changes. For example, protests have to be received in writing um, and within certain time period. And so I do think, and we flagged for our commission at our last um, Interstate Stream Commission meeting, that they should anticipate some change, potential changes to the rule um, coming this year that would make it bring it into the 21st century a little bit, make it easier for folks who who care and want to engage and also streamline the process for us. So you mentioned some really stark numbers there. Um, and I'm curious because, you know, looking at the current application before the state, um, you know, they note that industry standards suggest that a 15 to 20 percent increase in rainfall is likely over a normal summer seeding season of four to six months. Like that seems like such a slim, you know, like a slim chance that we're taking. But is the water situation in New Mexico such that we're just trying to grab at any tool or possibility? Um, like how big of an impact could weather modification really have? Um, I mean, I think it can be successful given certain, just the right circumstances. So um, from my understanding, even that 15 to 20% increase is, 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 you know, in the under exactly the right conditions, right? So, um, I think you know what's been interesting as part of this 50-year water planning effort is there's a lot of folks who look to solutions that involve increasing supply. So that could be cloud seeding or interbasin transfers or all those types of things. Um, in my opinion, a lot of those are are challenging and expensive. And sometimes where you you actually get the biggest bang for your buck is conservation, right? So how do we look at how we're using the water that we have now in our existing basins and, and use it more wisely. And probably ultimately the solution will be some combination of all of those things, lots of tools in the in the toolbox. Um, but certainly more work needs to be done on a basin by basin um, basis and with the water users and stakeholders in each of those basins to think through what are the solutions that make sense in each of those regions, given the scarcity that we're facing. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't think that cloud seeding is some silver bullet that will solve all of our problems by any means. Yeah. But it could be a part of, it could be a part of the solution, um, especially for communities that feel comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. Well, Hannah Risley White, thank you so much for talking with me about this. It's a really fascinating topic. You're so welcome. I'm happy and thanks for having me. And let's stick with the environmental content right now. We're going to pull from last week's show on New Mexico PBS with our line opinion panel talking about the hydrogen hub. This is something that came up in the regular legislative session. The governor wants to make us a hydrogen hub. There's a lot of federal money available for moving towards this technology, but there's also varying degrees of environmental friendliness in uh, hydrogen production. And here in New Mexico, what we're talking about is green, which is not the greenest in the environmental sense because it still starts with natural gas. Uh, there were many tries to start and kickstart and restart that push with the legislation in the regular session. All of them went nowhere, but the governor has now issued an executive order uh, directing some of her agencies to make way for this. This comes on the heels of an announcement a couple weeks ago that we were partnering with 
uh, three other states in a regional push towards this. And shortly after the executive order, we also found out that a a business company called Universal that's in this business of hydrogen energy is coming to Albuquerque and the Sunport. So lots to dive into here. Remind you, our line opinion panel is regular. Uh, Laura Sanchez, she's also an attorney. We also welcome back Diane Snyder, former state senator. And we've got Steve Terrell, retired reporter at the Santa Fe New Mexican, covering all these capital issues for so, so many years. But here now is host Gene Grant. Thanks again to Ebony Isis Booth for that interview. You'll see more from Grisha coming up in the next episode of Colonus here on New Mexico PBS. More than a month after the state legislature rejected several plans to create a hub for, in fact, for hydrogen energy here in New Mexico, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham issued an executive order directing members of her cabinet to work towards building a hydrogen economy. Let's bring the line panel back in to talk about the latest development in this saga. Now, as of just a few weeks ago, the plan was to use a form of hydrogen derived from natural gas. But in that executive order, if you noticed, the governor used the terms, quote, clean and zero carbon several times. In less than 10 minutes after the governor's announcement, Universal Hydrogen, a company devoted to, quote, green hydrogen, end quote, announced a deal here in Albuquerque. Now, how does this change the perception of this hydrogen push? Let me start with Laura Sanchez on that. What's changed for you when you consider hydrogen? Anything different here after the governor's executive order? Well, I think that it's important to um, think back to where we were at the time that the ETA was being talked about. And that was, um, in my opinion, that we needed an, you know, everything on the table approach to mm -hmm. addressing climate change, but also addressing our energy needs the in old the state. President Obama about, approach, right. right? And it was about a transition, right? And I think right. part of the part of what I see is um, this this the criticism that a lot of environmentalists have about this hydrogen approach um, is that they're you know they, they've addressed largely addressed a lot of the coal, um, obviously the coal burning and the CO two from that, and now they're shifting to all fossil fuels without really considering um, what that means for a lot of communities in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. There has to be a just transition. And that was a big part of what the ETA was about is including a just transition. Um, and so for these, what the governor has looked at along with other states um, in, the, in the region and using or leveraging federal funds um, is to try to figure out a way to transition into cleaner energy, but also continue to support communities that have that as a resource. And I think as we see right now, what's happening um, geopolitically around the, around the world, obviously with Ukraine and all the problems with with gas and and so forth. You know, we're we're increasingly connected um, worldwide, and resources that we have in New Mexico are still um, viable for addressing some of the. Um, not just environmental issues, but also addressing some of the supply issues around the world. So I think it's important for us to consider that, you know, it isn't as black and white as some folks would like to, to, to think when it comes to this issue. The other thing to consider also is that one of the big problems that environmentalists, and I think it's a reasonable concern uh, that environmentalists have about hydrogen, is that there is a byproduct of methane or there, there's potential methane escaping and that's overall a concern with um, oil and gas production but there is also technology that could be brought in to detect more methane um, escaping as well as uh, trying to do more differentiated gas meaning that you're trying to make sure that the production all throughout the process 
is done in a cleaner manner. And I think that's those are the kinds of technologies that we have to have um, to make sure that we're transitioning well into the future. And uh, the best way to do that is to leverage federal funds to be able to develop those kinds of technologies. So I think this is a smart um, uh, approach, uh, but it's very politically obviously difficult to do right now. Smart approach, Steve Terrell. I mean, the governor had a whole year to let us know what was up, her thoughts could have brought us into the process, environmentalists, legislators, everybody could have been, but new. No, right before the session, she decided to drop this bomb saying we're gonna have this new hydrogen hub. In hindsight, was that a smart way to go about this if it was so huge and the, the, the potential so big? Hell bent for hydrogen, that's our new state motto. Right. Um, no, I agree, no, I agree, Gene. I, I think that, um, yeah, she could have uh, done a better job of preparing uh, everybody for this, especially the legislature. I mean, the thing was, uh, when you see uh, Jerry Ortiz Pino and Jim Townsend voting the same way, you know, there's uh, <laughs> talk about uniting the legislature again. Right. Um, you know, she's not the only politician here, not the only Democratic politician who's pushed uh, hydrogen. Uh, yes. Senator Martin Heinrich has too, and Senator Ben Ray Lujan. But uh, uh, Senator Heinrich brought up an interesting fact at a uh, hearing, uh, I think in February, a, a, a congressional hearing, uh, this blue hydrogen, which depends on national, uh, natural gas, um, there's all this new technology uh, uh, going where you know, it'll be much cheaper to produce the green uh, hydrogen. Mm -hmm. But if we're investing all these millions of dollars in uh, blue hydrogen, in a which could be you know within five or ten years uh priced out by the green hydrogen you know is that really a, a wise move i i think this thing really needs to be looked at um by serious people and not just uh mm -hmm. you know this political back and forth mm -hmm. you know senator i was had a chance to interview uh secretary granholm when she was here in albuquerque or in new mexico not just albuquerque when she was doing the big hydrogen push to kind of get this thing going and she really kind of made it clear that New Mexico is right on the brink of something, so you can't blame the governor certainly for seeing something, but it's a process question. I, I, you know, that's what I'm asking here. What, the process just doesn't seem like she's able to get everybody on board. I, am I missing something here? Does she need everybody on board here? I think what you're missing is the $18 million that are coming from the feds. That's right. Uh, uh, one of well, the, Secretary uh, Granholm uh, made that very clear, believe me. Yeah. Eight, eight I, billion, I, by the way. Mm -hmm. I, I'm sorry, eight? Mm -hmm. I thought it was eight, eight, eight. Never mind, it's a lot of money. And and mm -hmm. we're in the market to have some of it. Yeah. I, th I have a couple thoughts. One is that maybe she was keeping it close to the vest while she was negotiating with the other states to try, which we now have the agreements with, mm -hmm. to make it more palatable and more eligible for funding mm -hmm. from the Fed. I think that's one thing. Did it come at a bad time? Because and, and I think she was somewhat taken aback, I was a little bit, that she got so much pushback on it. And then you start reading into it, and as Laura and Steve have said, you understand why that was occurring. Mm -hmm. But then there's a part of me that goes, okay, did that pushback come from the reasons they give, or is it once again the age-old uh, fossil fuel industries against the environmentalist? How much of that played into 
the discussion and the rejection of the bill because it would it would use and certainly with all the natural gas we have in new mexico Mm -hmm. it would we're the natural partner with the other states that are involved in this compact with her so i to me i'm still sitting on the outside going okay lots of money lots of jobs a step toward cleaner energy mm-hmm. in New Mexico. Why? Why all this pushback against it? Right. From for her and her moving forward to do it. Interesting. So, there. and I think, and I think sometimes you have to be a true leader and step up and say, guys, you, you took the wrong turn on this one, so we're going to go. Mm-hmm. I don't. Laurie, your so, thoughts on that? I have a question for you, but I'm interested yeah. in your follow-up yeah, to no, what Senator just mentioned. I mean. Look, timing is everything, right? And in a perfect world, the governor would have given plenty of time like everybody else does when it comes to shopping an issue during interim committee meetings and then prepping it for pre-filing and then actually having it introduced and then talking about it. But here's the key. When it comes to those federal funds from the Department of Energy, the announcement on that clean hydrogen hub funding, infrastructure funding, didn't come out until February 15th, 2022. If you look at, if you if you just Google that part of it, the DOE announcement on the, that hydrogen hub infrastructure funding came out February 15th. So, I mean, I think there was obviously talk well before that from DOE about something being in the works, but until it's officially announced by DOE- But, she, but the, the Secretary of Energy was here. The Secretary, way before February of 2022. He was, but that doesn't mean that there's an actual opportunity that's that's open until it's officially announced. And that occurred on February 15th. And that was right before the end of session. Mm-hmm. So I think that the timing needs to be explained a little bit better, could be explained a little bit better as to why this happened the way that it did after the discussion on the actual legislative aspect of it had already occurred. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a, a good reason for that. We have to, we're, we're kind of at the mercy of what the federal government is gonna do with regard to that infrastructure funding. Yep. And there was obviously a lot of delay on that this year. We'll be watching this developing story over the coming weeks and months, no doubt, along with that appeal in the proposed Avangrid PNM merger. <laughs> That's in there too. Thanks to our panelists once again. We'll check back in with them in about 20 minutes to talk about the organized effort to keep the Democratic Party from inching further left. We have lots of great friends uh, throughout the media landscape here in New Mexico, and that includes the Santa Fe Reporter. You often see Julianne Grimm or Julia Goldberg from The Reporter on our line opinion panel, but they also are doing some great reporting right now, really looking at the impacts long-term of the Yazzie Martinez lawsuit. This was the lawsuit that alleged that the state was not living up to its constitutional requirement to provide a quality education for all New Mexico children, uh, specifically underserved populations like the Native American population, special needs students. Uh, The courts ruled that the state was, in fact, um, not doing all that it could, and the state and the governor and lawmakers have been making a lot of adjustments in recent years. Uh, providing for more cultural sensitivity in the classroom, cultural teachings, also more resources around these issues. But the jury is still out on if it has made enough of a difference. And that is the focus of the Santa Fe Reporters reporting. They have a six-part series that they're about halfway through. Uh, The new editions come out every Wednesday, so we encourage you to check out the newest one this week as well as catch up on past week's. And if you're in the Santa Fe area, be sure to go and pick up your copy wherever you can get that. 
But we recently had a Facebook Live with host Gene Grant and the reporter behind that series and wanted to bring that to you here as a little bit of extra content on the podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the reporting, uh, the series, as well as those impacts of Yazi Martinez all these years later. Let us know. Drop us a line here on the podcast or any of our social media channels, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook. We'd love to hear from you. But here now is Gene Grant. Thank you, Lou. Appreciate it. Hello, folks. Time for Facebook Live. It's Wednesday, just a little bit after the hour. Had some technical difficulties there. I appreciate, <clears throat> pardon the work of Lou DiVizio to get us going here. We'll be talking with, <clears throat> pardon me again, William Mulhado, reporter for the Santa Fe Reporter, one of the wonderful papers in Santa Fe. And I have to nod our note our good friend, Julianne Grimm, who's the editor and publisher of the paper. And she's been a wonderful guest for us on New Mexico in Focus. But today, we're going to be talking with William about the interesting Yazi Martinez lawsuit, what's going on because the Santa Fe Reporter is just busting out an interesting series, including an article today we'll be talking about here. So William, thank you. Welcome. I understand you are down from Denver, uh, the Denver area in Colorado, and welcome to New Mexico. Hey, thanks so much, Gene. Yeah, really happy to be here. Absolutely. Do us a favor and it, it, just a quick synopsis of what brought us here to this ruling and where you want to go with the series. Yeah, so um, I guess uh, the ruling in 2018 by Judge Sarah Singleton uh, was essentially a uh, indictment of the state's public education for failing to provide a adequate, sufficient education to at-risk students, um, which, which was specifically for student populations, um, Native children, students receiving special education services, children from low-income families, and students who are learning English. Um, and uh, in 2014, uh, the state ruled that education was a, a constitutional right. And so by failing to provide adequate education, the, the state was violating the, the constitutional right of, of these children. And that wasn't a new uh, you know, discovery. Uh, people had been you know, talking about New Mexico's education for you know, decades. Uh, it was just at the point that you know, advocates finally realized the change was only gonna happen if, if they kind of held the state, state to the state's feet to the, to the fire through the courts. And, and so um, that ruling happened in, in 2018, and, and a lot has happened since then, um, but uh, there's still a long way to go. Mm -hmm. Good points there. What made you folks as a Santa Fe reporter uh, decide you wanted to take a deep, deep dive into this? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm really interested in education. I, I was Before I, I joined the Santa Fe Reporter, I worked as a teacher um, uh, for about five years. Mm -hmm. And um, education in New Mexico is fascinating because you have um, simultaneously some of the most incredible um, uh, education happening in classrooms across the state and um, some really amazing educators that, that I had the opportunity to speak with and, and, and learn from. And then, you know, on its face, a lot of people criticize and, and really focus on the deficits of New Mexico's classrooms. And, and so I was kind of interested in how both of those two things can, can exist at the same time. Uh, and, and I think a lot of it really was just coming back to the, the Yaz Martinez lawsuit. Um, and, and I wanted to take a look at, okay, what has the state done and, and how um, have some of those remedies either been um, well received or perhaps not fully implemented and, and kind of where, where do we need to go? Mm -hmm. You know, interesting, um, you're right about the vast amount of money the state has invested in education since the ruling. It's an interesting uh, bit there. But add to that uh, fundamental transformation 
of the schooling system is still needed that comes across clearly in the writing here. What would that look like in your view if that transformational thought was actually put on the ground here? I, I, I was just talking with, with um, uh, one of the individuals who uh, kind of worked a lot on the Martinez side of the, the case about what transformative education would look like. And, and, and they said that um, kind of one of the things that needs to happen immediately is looking at our students from like an asset-based um, lens. Um, mm -hmm. So for example, looking at English language learners, not looking at their um, maybe not fully developed English as a barrier, but really as an asset as, oh, wow, this, this child already has a language that they can communicate in. Uh, and, and that kind of is a, is a the philosophical uh, shift that, that teachers and schools uh, and, and the public education department um, has to make, um, but also the uh, basic transformation of, of schools has been outlined by um, both the Yazzie and the Martinez plaintiffs uh, and their kind of advocates through various plans, um, one of which is the um, uh, travel remedy framework. And, and one of the things that kind of has been interesting is that the state has not been as um, forthcoming with a kind of comprehensive plan to transform education as I think advocates would have liked. Uh, there was a plan that was um, drafted by uh, former uh, education secretary Veronica Garcia, um, but we haven't seen that yet, um, despite the fact that, that we were told it would be um, available prior to the most recent legislative session. Uh, so, so I think that that has been one thing that, that people have been pointing to and, and kind of asking, where is this plan? And, and so all the money that we've invested is, um, you know, without a blueprint, so to speak. And, and I think that has some people concerned. Yeah. Interesting in your story, in your reporting that uh, it, it, we should note Ms. Garcia was paid for that study as well. Mm -hmm. So you would think there'd be some incentive to get that information out, you know, and not a small amount of money either, uh, I might add. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, when I spoke with um, uh, uh, now Secretary Kurt Steinhaus of the Education Department, he, he mentioned wanting to really just dial that plan and make sure that it's, you know, as, as accurate and as, uh, you know, best, as good as possible for, for those students. And, and, and I think that there certainly is, uh, you know, a good reason to, to spend the time to make sure that, that all of those students are getting the service need. But, uh, you know, other people have also mentioned, you know, we could have done a lot since 2018 that necessarily hasn't um, happened yet. Good point there. We're talking with William Melhado from the Santa Fe Reporter about the Yazzie Martinez case and their long form reporting on the uh, ramifications of this. I'm going to recommend you go to the sfreporter.com to try and check this out. Um, checking in on a couple of things. I'm curious, William, where you think possibly the pandemic played a role in this? It, it was, is it significant? Did it, did it really put a chain on all of this or what happened during the pandemic? Yes, I mean, certainly it's kind of uh, impossible to not discuss and, and, and incorporate um, the ramifications of the pandemic in, in this topic. You know, it, it has made teaching, uh, running schools, everything incredibly difficult um, and, and certainly has probably delayed a lot of some of the efforts that the PED and, and advocates have, have hoped to enact to address educational inequities. Um, one thing that, that I think is interesting about it is that, you know, the pandemic revealed really fully to us how 
expansive the digital divide is in terms of the lack of technology, the lack of broadband infrastructure across the state, which, you know, of course was necessary when schools went remote. But before schools went remote, you know, 21st education, uh, 20, education in the 21st century, you know, required internet access. You know, students need to have those skills, needed to have those skills before the pandemic. But of course, you know, when, when that was the only way for students to access class, it was um, really uh, apparent how, how unequal education had become in, in the state in, in just that regard. And, and in uh, December of 2020, the Yazzie uh, plaintiffs filed an emergency motion for uh, uh, relief to essentially get technology to all those students, um, which is obviously a huge task. And, and there have been major improvements and but there are still students that you know don't have reliable internet access or, or you know don't even have reliable electricity, uh, which is another you know larger issue. That's right. Good points there. Um, the broadband issue, of course, got addressed in during the session. Uh, I don't recall Yazi Martinez being mentioned a whole lot during that. Maybe it's because the money just sort of unfolded and it re really wasn't that big of a controversy. But in your reporting, is there a sense of a little hurry up mode now for for connectivity? Has this spurred something uh, out there? Yeah, I, I think it has. There, there's been a, a lot of money allocated for broadband infrastructure, um, mm -hmm. hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, the, the hard thing is, is that uh, New Mexico is, is uniquely uh, difficult to, to put in that broadband infrastructure because of um, not only our really diverse kind of geography, but also our kind of um, land, different types of land, um, mm -hmm ownership and, and all that kind of adds to the challenge. And it's not a quick, easy solution to this, um, this issue. There, there is enormous amounts of like construction and, and just like physical wires that need to be placed in the ground right. before, um, before people can get connected. And, and it, just, it just does take time, but at the same time, you know, they, they need to, uh, there, there needs to be more broadband access to these students if, if, if we hope to, you know, continue providing an education that, that students should be receiving in the 21st century. It really isn't an argument at this point, is it? And, and now it's just a question of get, getting it in the ground, as you say, and at a, what did I hear, half million dollars a mile, whatever it is to lay fiber. We still have some challenges to get out the fifth largest state in our union, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm really interested in your, in your thoughts on this. Standardized testing Big part of the story, and always will be actually, mm -hmm. uh, because low scores are one of those data points highlighted in the ruling, and those standardized tests are now back after a two-year pandemic break. I'm, I'm curious in your, in your reporting what you're finding on this, because are kids better off than they were in 2018 with, those, with the testing that we have now? I, I know that's an opinion question, but I'm curious what, yeah, <laughs> what your thoughts is on that. I can kind of just offer what what you know what we have and and, and sure. what I've heard. Uh, you know, standardized testing is for 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 better or worse what, what we've kind of hitched our um, our ride to in terms of assessing students. Not not entirely, but you know, especially under former Governor Susana Martinez, there was a lot of emphasis placed on testing to not only measure student proficiency but also evaluate teachers' success, which is mm -hmm. problematic. Um, given the diversity of the state. 
but um, we still rely on standardized testing to inform us on how students are doing. And that was one of the things that Judge Singleton cited in, in essentially proving that, in, that, that education was insufficient is that you know, students in those four groups uh, labeled as at risk were underperforming on those tests. Um, and, and there is certainly a lot uh, to be said about crit critiquing standardized testing for, for not actually assessing certain information, particularly for um, students who, who English is not a first language. Um, but uh, we have to kind of rely on some of those standardized tests to, to inform us, to inform how students are doing. And, and so, um, you know, the, the short term, um, in, in the short term, what, what PED has collected does not point to a, you know, a, a significant significant gains for students um, because we were put on that kind of hiatus for um, probably a very good reason uh, during the pandemic, um, the, the public education department kind of relied on like short-term interim testing to, to assess students. And, and those show decreases in, in math and reading where, where we typically assess students. Um, and, and I don't think anyone was particularly surprised by that. Parents and, and teachers all kind of observed what was possible in remote education. And for some students, it worked out really well. And for a lot of students, it, it didn't. So I think coming into standardized testing this year uh, will be a really interesting look at, at really what the pandemic has done to educational outcomes from, from that perspective. Um, and, and I think also will we'll kind of give us a, a perspective of for those particularly vulnerable students who were not receiving an adequate education before the pandemic to see um, kind of how the pandemic um, uh, impacted their, their learning. Mm -hmm. I'm curious as a teacher, you've been in the classroom, uh, of course. Is there a better way? I know we have to benchmark where kids are before we can get them someplace. But in your view, is there a better way to assess student performance than, than standardized testing? Yeah, you know, that was a, that's, that's a question I, I really enjoy posing to other teachers because okay. I'm certainly not an expert. Um, uh, you know, I, I think there's a there's a lot of examples out there of alternatives to standardized testing kind of portfolios that that measure um, kind of a student's progress mm -hmm. and, and and just more um, formative assessments, which is essentially uh, rather than one big at high risk test, kind of shorter weekly or, or more frequent, uh, less formal assessments. Mm -hmm. and, and so in addition to, to those, standardized testing does play a a not insignificant role in, in assessing a whole child's um, kind of progress, uh, which is what we're looking at when we want assessment is, you know, how, how are they progressing in, in, right. in a grade? And, and so it's kind of um, a multi, there's a lot of, a lot of approaches that, that, that schools and, and educators probably um, need to take. And it's not just a, oh, let's do this one uh, standardized test and, and call it a day. And I think the, 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 the PED definitely recognizes that, uh, that they've kind of the, new standardized tests they've switched over to from uh, PARC, which was the test that um, uh, Governor Martinez uh, um, relied on. Um, they, their new standardized testing, which is New Mexico Measures for um, Student Success and Achievement, I believe, um, is, is a bit more uh, holistic in, in its kind of approach to um, looking at, at, at children and their progress. Mm -hmm. um your work, speaking of which, your work also mentions a, that 2019 directive from the PED to create advisory councils. 
you know, so we can get down, you know, a little closer to the ground in individual uh, areas and groups and such. Is that working? What's your reporting showing? Yeah, um, I guess it depends on who you talk to um, yeah. in terms of those, uh, the efficacy of those those councils. And, and that was a part of kind of a, um, a multi-pronged approach PED took to addressing or really looking at equity at individual schools. And, and everyone that I've spoken to agrees New Mexico and all of its diversity will not um, you, you can't prescribe uh, one size fits all solutions or, or also, you know, make um, kind of assessments of, of how the, each the schools are doing because they're all so different. Um, but the uh, advisory councils were, were tasked with essentially addressing and, and evaluating the, the amount of inequities and, and what serious needs that their individual districts had. Um, and, and reporting that I kind of came across showed that, you know, the buy-in from individual districts or, or um, local education agencies was, was not significant. Um, in addition to creating the councils, they had to produce deliverables, which were essentially items that, that were to assess equity or to come up with plans to, to make schools more equitable. Mm-hmm. And um, in one instance, only uh, 50% of, of districts in the state had, had submitted those. Um, in, in the case of other items, less than one fifth of, oh, of wow. districts. Really? So, yeah, and, and, okay. and when you know, I, I brought those numbers to the PED, they, they were aware of them, obviously, and, and, and said, you know, it's, it, it, we're, we're working with districts to help them support them. It, it, it is hard because on one hand, it's, it's a mandate from the public education department. But at the same time, you know, public education department has to be careful not to, you know, try and force these districts mm-hmm. to do this and, and just kind of push them away from, from buying into this. Uh, equity work um, that, that they're asking districts to do. How about the tribal remedy framework uh, written by tribal and indigenous education leaders? You know, the framework, as you reported, was sent to the state. Can you explain what was included and how that, how was, how that plan was received? Yeah, um, so th- there's been a number of kind of different like approaches to, to remedies, um, this being, being one of them that have adv- advocates and, and groups have contributed to the state and, and, and made suggestions. Um, the, the tribal remedy framework kind of particularly focused on um, giving um, tribal education departments more control over the education of, of native students, um, and relying on more kind of community-based education and, and, and providing um, curriculum that's more culturally and linguistically sustaining, which is what these tribal education departments have, have said we need in order to um, support our students. Um, and, and, and to some extent, some of those uh, remedies have, have been um, funded and kind of started the, this year in the legislative session, um, uh, tribal education or Indian education and, and tribal libraries saw, saw a lot more money. And that's a great step. I, I think from a lot of the people that I've spoken with, um, one of the biggest areas that they would like to see improvement on is, is just collaboration. And that's, I think, a um, maybe a bit of a kind of a, a vague uh, um, assessment, but at the same time, you know, it's really important that the state continue working with these uh, groups to, to make sure that, you know, every voice is included in this process. Uh, and it's certainly challenging, I think, to, to 
realize that you know these groups have have sued the state, um, and the state obviously has responded um, through um, legal proceedings, but they still have to work together in order to to get the state to a you know a, a more equitable place in terms of providing education. Good last point there. Exactly right. Hey, you've got an article coming out today. Do I have that correct in the series? Yeah, we just published one today. Uh, it's the, um, sorry, I'm losing track here. Uh, I think the, the second uh, in the, or the third in the series, excuse me. Um, and this one is focusing on, on teachers uh, because, you know, a lot of people that, that uh, I, I speak with have, um, you know, really just doubled down on, on, um, on communicating the importance of teachers. There's not really any other factors in schools, calendars, administration, curriculum, that's more important on, in terms of improving student outcomes than, than just quality of teaching. And, and, and like I mentioned earlier, New Mexico has some incredible educators. Um, and uh, at the same time, there's also um, significant need changes that, that need to be made in order to better support the students. And, and one of the things that, came up uh, in my reporting was the need to um, train teachers to, to provide um, teaching that is uh, supportive of those developing English as a, as a second or, or third language. Mm -hmm. um, in, in, in some cases in districts, uh, students identified as English language learners were, were placed in, in remedial um, reading programs uh, rather than actually provided with um, rich curriculum that develops their education and develops their English. Um, so, so that's kind of an area that, that people have said um, universities that train teachers need to improve on. Uh, and, and certainly um, the state uh, also has, has recognized the importance of teacher training. And, and the, the, the big thing that, that we saw out of this legislative session was the 10K um, raise to teacher salaries, which is right everyone is arguing needed to happen a, a while ago and it's great that it's happening now. Um, but nonetheless, teachers are incredibly valuable, which we hear a lot, but um, it, it is a pretty nuanced discussion. How does, how does it impact teacher recruitment? That's also a big, huge problem here. We're not getting the pipeline on the front end of it filled as much as we would like to have teachers coming out. And we're still, as we've reported here in the Mexico PBS quite often over the years, the loss of teachers after the first year or two is still a huge problem here. And I know you went through this yourself personally. I was, my ex-wife is a school teacher and I can tell you that first year, I don't think I would wish it on anybody in any profession. It's a very difficult position to be in. So where are we, where are we on, on teacher recruitment with all of the challenges your, you know, your series is exposing here? Yeah, I, I think um, the, the big number that we've seen probably reported I know, I know I've reported it many times is that, you know, this year we had over a thousand teacher vacancies, which was over double what we had in the previous year. So it certainly is a crisis. Uh, and um, interestingly enough, when uh, the uh, state filed a motion to dismiss the case in, in March of 2020, one of the things that they cited as a, as a reason to dismiss the uh, Yazi Martinez lawsuit was, was a, a decrease in teacher vacancy. But, but as we can see this year, that, that issue has not been resolved. Uh, and, and I think, you know, I, I guess I don't have a, a, a good um, sense of, of how um, teacher retainment is, is going to improve. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I know that, you know, 
increasing teacher salary it is a pretty good start just just in the sense that it attracts more people to a profession that they might not have previously considered and it retains those teachers who might be close to retirement age and think oh well, well I might as well keep teaching for a couple more years and, and so I think the the educator pay is a pretty important part of that discussion uh also you know, going back to universities and, and helping support universities to make sure they are providing the support to those students to, to get through the process of, of becoming a teacher, um, which is not, no easy task if you're in the classroom or just getting ready to become to be in the classroom. That's right. You know, you know, trying to attract teachers to rural parts of our state has always been a challenge as well. It's, it's a real difficulty. Again, without that whole ecosystem you're describing around them, they end up feeling very alone very underappreciated, you know, you know, not much parental input. It's a, it's a very difficult position to be in. And I have to thank you again for the series. It's very interesting reading and I put it on the highly recommended <laughs> deal there. We'll have a link in the thread below for sure. And William, I can't thank you enough. William Melhado from the Santa Fe Reporter, sfreporter.com. It is a series on where Yazi Martinez stands and where we might need to go in our education system. Thank you so much. William, I really appreciate your time today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Gene. I want to end this episode with some exciting news. Those of you who are aware of our sister podcast, Growing Forward, we have a new season launching this week, tomorrow, in fact. Growing Forward is a collaborative podcast with KUNM Radio and the New Mexico Political Report. Our hosts are Andy Lyman and Megan Kamrick. And it is devoted entirely to the business and the industry of cannabis here in New Mexico. We're now less than a month away from a fully legalized recreational use cannabis program here in New Mexico. And this is the perfect time to kick off season four. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts, uh, Spotify, iTunes, you name it. You can find it there. Just search for Growing Forward. But we want to give you a little teaser here of our episode that drops tomorrow where we caught up with the director of the Cannabis Control Division to see where we are as we head into that April 1st day, that landmark day when the market becomes legal, and specifically about a Senate bill that made its way through the regular session designed to fix some things in the Cannabis Control Act that unfortunately just ran out of time. So we'll find out what was in that bill and what it will mean that it didn't get updated before the market opens on April 1st. But here now is a taste of the first episode of Season 4 of Growing Forward with your hosts, Andy Lyman and Megan Kamrick. We'll dive into the world of cannabis science in just a bit, but first we should catch everyone up on how cannabis fared during the 30-day legislative session that ended in February. Among other issues like crime, voting rights, and the state's budget, lawmakers were faced with a bill that aimed to clean up the existing Cannabis Regulation Act. The bill stalled in the last days of the session for a number of reasons. Senate Bill 100 had sort of a slow start, considering that the legislature only had 30 days to get through stacks of legislation. The bill would have done several things, but the big stuff was increasing production limits for microproducers and also allowing them to wholesale with other companies. The bill ultimately was left hanging in a House committee right before the House started a marathon floor session that lasted about 24 hours. 
To better understand the implications of SB 100, we spoke with Cannabis Control Division Director Kristen Thompson. Here she is explaining more about what the bill would have done if it passed and what its failure means for the industry. Senate Bill 100 was really aimed at two things. One, cleaning up the language so that we can do a more in-depth background check. And then the other piece was for the current retailers or the, the legacy operators. We wanted to work with them to clarify how they go about selling their business or not selling their business, but transitioning from a not-for-profit to a for-profit and how do we transition that license. Part of what seemed to spur Senate Bill 100, at least the production increase, was an emergency rule that allows a temporary plant increase for non-micro producers. Those companies can now go up to 20,000 plants. So what is the outlook on supply right now? We have seen a number of producers actually that had the ability to expand quickly, put more plants in the ground. Obviously, the harvest on those does not happen immediately. It is a plant. And the intent of the increase was not targeted at at April 1, but making sure that there was adequate supply in the months, uh, days and months to come. I think 200 plants is the maximum for microproducers right now. It would have gone to 1,000 if this legislation had passed. Is there anything by way of rulemaking that the division can do to sort of help out those microproducers? I mean, obviously it's written into statute, right? Right. The plant limit is written into statute. It's certainly unfortunate that the statute was not amended during the session, but the Cannabis Control Division remains as committed as we ever have been in supporting small local entrepreneurs starting out in the industry. In the next few weeks, the application process for the nation's first ever cannabis microbusiness loan program, which is contained within the NMFA, can never remember what that stands for, but... um, (laughs) New Mexico Finance Authority. Thank you. So that loan program will begin. It gives small producers and businesses a chance to access needed capital. And the Cannabis Control Division will also do our best in leveraging our rulemaking authority to help position microproducers interested in, that are interested in expanding their businesses so that they can jump in when we are able to increase that plant count and be prepared, ready to go at that juncture. I think we all are aware that increasing space and building out your cultivation is uh, often a capital intensive Um, And plants do take a while to grow. We want to make sure that everybody is successful and we are here to help with the future expansion for our microproducers. So I did speak with Matt Munoz of Carver Family Farm, who we've we've heard from a lot in the podcast. He sort of, and I think his comment was sort of uh, hypothetical, but he had mentioned to me, you know, for $5,000, I can just go get a a non-micro license. Practically speaking, if somebody were to, if somebody wanted to do that, would what would that process be? Would they have to go through the whole thing all over again? Could they contact you all and say, I actually just want to change my paperwork a little bit? We are actually working out a, a mechanism right now to address that. The intent is not to make anybody go through the whole application process again. But as you are probably aware, the state agencies are responsible to, to the legislature when it comes to 
funding and finances. So we've got to make sure that everything that we are working on can be audited and tracked. And at the end of the day, that financial transaction, we really need to be secure about uh, so that we can report back to the taxpayers of New Mexico. And that'll do it for this episode of New Mexico in Focus, but be sure to join us again on Friday for an all-new episode, all kinds of great content. We're working on a lot of things that we can't wait to share with you. Again, keep up with us throughout the week as we do our Facebook Lives and share uh, news and tidbits with you. Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, just search for New Mexico in Focus. You can find it all there. Drop us a line while you're there. Speaking of dropping us a line, you can do that here in the podcast. But what really helps is if you leave us a nice review. That really goes a long way in the success of the podcast, which we are uh, really excited to bring you and hope to continue doing. We need your help there, so leave us those great reviews and share with your friends and family. Tell them to subscribe if they don't already so you get those new episodes right in your inbox. Until next time, though, thanks for listening. Stay safe. Stay healthy.